episode of Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. This is not going to be a song episode so much as an album introduction episode. Before each album, I'm going to do an introduction episode with some basic information about the album, when it charted, when was it released, what's the basic background of the album, like what what were the recording conditions like, etc, etc. And so for this episode... We're going to be starting the second season of the show, and we're going to be talking about Lionheart, which we all know was Kate's second album. It was released on November 10th, 1978, not even nine months after The Kick Inside. It went to number six on the UK charts, and it did not chart in the US. In fact, I don't think it's even been officially released in the US. You usually have to get it on an import. And it's the only album of hers to date that was recorded outside the UK. This album was recorded in the south of France during the summer of 1978. She had the same producer, Andrew Powell, who worked with her on The Kick Inside. It's also worth noting that Andrew Powell has also worked on soundtracks. In fact, I was watching the movie Ladyhawk a couple weeks ago, and I noticed his name in the credits, as well as the names of the guitarists and the drummer and all the other musicians that I went, hey, wait a minute, I recognize those names. That's because they worked with Kate on The Kick Inside and Lionheart. So she, however, though, Kate did not want to necessarily go with what the producer wanted. The story goes is that she wanted to use her own backing band, the KT Bush band, who we talked about in the Kick Inside episodes. However, the producer didn't want her to use her own people because he didn't think that they were experienced enough. So she had to go with the people that Andrew Powell wanted to work with. She had only a month to put the songs together. As I mentioned, she was supposed to be ready to go record with the guys in the south of France on July 7th. And the record company wanted her to put all this together so that they could capitalize on her sudden success. They wanted her to do another kick inside. And so she put stuff together and went to the south of France and out came Lionheart about six weeks later. At the time, Kate was pretty happy with the album. In fact, she said in Melody Maker in November 1978 that, quote, maybe I'm a bit too close to it at the moment, but I find it much more adventurous than the last one. I'm much more happier with the songs and the arrangements and the backing tracks. I was getting a bit worried about labels from that last album, everything being in the high register, everything being soft and airy-fairy. That was great for the time, but it's not really what I want to do now or what I want to do, say, in the next year. 
I guess I want to get basically heavier in the sound sense. And I think that's on the way. <coughs> and I think that's on the way, which makes me really happy. That was from November 1978 from Melody Maker, retrieved from Kappa.org. And well, we all know, yeah, she definitely ended up going pretty heavy <laughs> on the album that came after this, Never Forever. However, uh, she was later quoted as saying, I had only a week after we got back from Japan to prepare for the album. I was lucky to get it together so quickly, but the songs seem to me now to be somewhat overproduced. I didn't put enough time into them. That was from Pulse magazine from 1984. Again, retreat from McAfee.org. And then in 1989 in Tracks magazine, she says, it was rushed and I was responsible for me taking as much time as possible over albums. Considering how quickly we made it, it's a bloody good album, but I'm not really happy with it. And certainly critics have not were not kind to this album either. Um, a lot of them said that it was campy and that it was rushed and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, it sold well. It went to number six on the UK charts. And the singles, though, not quite, not, maybe not quite as well. Wow was the most successful single. That went to number 14 on the charts and was released on March 9th, 1979. The lead single didn't do quite as well. It went to number 44 and was released just a few weeks before this album. Uh, Dropped in stores, came out on October 27th, 1978. That was Hammer Horror, by the way. Symphony in Blue was also released as a single, but that was only in Japan. And as far as I have been able to research and poke around the internet, that didn't chart there. But it was released as a single, even if it was only in Japan. So... Kate doesn't seem very happy with this album. Critics weren't really happy with this album, as we'll get to talk about with um, with somebody for this up ep- later on for this episode. And certainly, I don't see it rank very high on a lot of um, on a lot of fan favorite albums. Like, if you're like, what is your fa- What are your favorite Kate albums? This one tends to rank toward the bottom, and I'm gonna have to say that. It's really unfortunate because in some ways I personally connect with more of this album Lionheart than I do the kick inside in some ways, but I really enjoy this album. I think that there, if there's one word to describe it, it's lush. I feel like you can hear the beginnings of Kate having other things going on under her voice that she gets more into later she also continues her storytelling even more so on this album than on the kick inside every song is like a mini movie and she is telling a story from somebody else's point of view whether it's in the song kashka from baghdad or in coffee homeground she's paranoid about somebody trying she thinks that somebody's trying to kill her or she's an actor in hammer horror or she's a drag queen (laughs) in wow so every song is her playing a different character and even more than in the kick inside and now i actually have probably more than her other albums i have probably the most personal connection to this album because when I listen to it I'm reminded of when I first bought it I bought this album on CD when I went to France in 2006 I studied abroad there for three months and before I left I had started getting into Kate's music and I had heard about Lionheart and some people like oh it's not as good it was rushed so I was really wary of diving into that album because I'd heard so much against it but I thought oh you know I'll wait till I get to France and it's probably just gonna be like five euros yeah whatever so I did find that album I found that one and Never Forever when I listen to Lionheart I'm reminded of sitting on my bed listening to the album as I was doing my homework and on beautiful like unseasonably warm days I would have the shutters open and so I'd I'd hear this, the traffic below and I'd see people walking their dogs and just like watching the world. 
all while listening to this album. And Kate is such a, an observer in her music. And that's kind of how I felt. I felt like I was an observer, like watching people and watching the world. And also, I connected especially with the title. Lionheart is such a cool way of saying brave without actually saying brave. (laughs) And I felt like I was very much a Lionheart. I was traveling across the ocean by myself for the very first time and immersing myself in a language that I had been learning at that point for about six years. I started in middle school when I was 14 and took French all the way through high school. And then I started studying it in college. And it was a new experience like to, to actually be speaking French every day and there were, you know, there were whole days where I spoke nothing but French. I mean, of course, I didn't forget my English, but it it was a really different experience. And I felt like I was very much a Lionheart being in this new country and immersing myself in a culture that I loved very, very much. So I connect with this album the most personally, I think, of all her albums Every album has some sort of personal connection for me, but this album in particular reminds me of being in France in 2006 and just learning to navigate things on my own, and I was being my own Lionheart. So those are my personal thoughts on the album, and enough about me. Let's get to the discussion here. So a little quick intro about our guest for this show. Her name is Zoe. And we met on Twitter. She is a huge, though she would say huge is an understatement, fan of Kate Bush. And we connected over, obviously, Kate Bush and music. And she's been wonderful to talk to. And when she heard that I was looking for people for Lionheart, she said, she was like, immediately, hey, hey, sign me up. I want to talk about this. And I've got a lot of thoughts on this album because I think that this is really underrated. So it was great to talk with somebody who also finds this album to be a little underappreciated in her canon. And I hope that in listening to our discussion that maybe you'll go and put the album on and reevaluate it a little bit. So without further ado, let's get to our guest for this episode. And I'm going to be talking with Zoe. Welcome to the show. Hi. Nice. I'm so thrilled to be here. I know, and it's so great to talk to you because we've been going back and forth on Twitter and email and, oh, yay. Yeah, no, it, it'll be fun to actually, like, dive in. Exactly. So, uh, you want to go on ahead and introduce yourself a little bit here? Sure. Um, my name's Zoe. I'm, I think it's important to position my, I think with any music criticism, it's important to, like, position yourself and your identity and who you are so that you know where this person's coming from especially so I'm yeah I'm on the younger well I like to think I'm on the younger side I'm 26 but like sometimes I feel like 400 Um, I do too (laughs) yeah um I'm currently I'm a clinical social worker which is like basically lingo for like badly paid therapist (laughs) so that's something that I bring a lot to the table is analysis because I also have a really my academic background is in literary and film and media criticism and media studies so and women's studies feminist theory um queer theory I'm just a theory nerd so um what appeals about to me about Kate Bush's work so much is that like when I was first discovering it which was after I was in college there was so much of like feminist and queer theory stuff that kept on like popping up in my head in regards to her work. And I was like, am I just like connecting the dots and then being crazy? But for somebody, and it is interesting because she always says that above anything else, she's a writer. Mm-hmm. So I really like to dig into what she writes. And sometimes it's lyrics such as my pussy queen knows all my secrets from Egypt. will never forever. Uh, my favorite line of hers ever, but not exactly songwriting greatness versus some like work versus like her, saying put out the night put out the light quoting Othello in um in blow away on that same mm-hmm. album so she goes she really runs the gamut from like the profane to, like because also like as from the previous season we know with feel it and Lamore looks something like you she girl gets dirty like yes, she, she is does. a freak with a cap she's a freak with a capital f so um 
so what appeals to me is just that there's so much to dive into both lyrically and sonically. Um, I'm a huge film buff and a huge bookworm. And I've always been extremely passionate about music. And at the same, discovering Kate Bush's music got me really reinvigorated that passion for music. Um, and in high school, it was something that was very definitive for me. And then I, cinephilia and film, being a film buff really took over everything. Um, but ever since getting to Kate Bush, has really, it's really reignited my passion for music in general. And I think it's just the most healing and empowering thing. I'm somebody who, so just to kind of talk about my position, where I'm coming from as a critic and as a, as a thinker, is that I'm white, I'm on the younger side, I'm queer. Um, I, let me think, I'm a feminist. And by feminist, I would like to say I'm an intersectional feminist. So I am going to be hard on Kate on moments in which I see her, her whiteness and some white supremacy stuff coming up, mm-hmm. such as in Kashmir from Baghdad, in Egypt, on Never Forever, and other places. And then I'll applaud her for moments where she actually is cool about race. But mm-hmm. I think it's really important to incorporate queer theory and feminist theory and critical race theory into music criticism, um, because no, music doesn't exist in a vacuum. Also, like, just especially, she's such a queer icon, Mm -hmm. and not on purpose, not on purpose at all, but um, she, like, she was quoted early in her career saying, I write my music for men, and I'm just like, girl, uh, yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. basically, for me, she has been extremely inspiring, almost like a mother figure, because I'm somebody who was bullied a lot growing up and socially isolated for being weird and has always been called weird and all of that. And, you know, her manifesto on the dreaming is literally, we let the weirdness mm-hmm. in. She, yep. she, she really allows you to be a freak and makes it a safer place for the, for, for the freaks in the world, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And when you look at her fan base, um, besides like the middle-aged British men who tend to talk more about her breasts, they tend to be people who have been kind of in a marginalized position. For example, um, in the BBC's documentary, The Kate Bush Story, Tricky from Massive Attack, talked a lot about like growing up in a council flat, which is like the UK equivalent of the project, and saying like, look, like my life, I didn't have my mother commit suicide when I was very young, and Kate Bush's music was like my Bible. And Big Boy is a huge fan of her. I just find mm-hmm. it very interesting that her music really resonates even though in England she's hugely popular, the people for whom it resonates really strongly tend to be the freaks. Mm-hmm. And I think, and Lionheart in particular is an album in which, which really explains why Lionheart to me is an album that encapsulates everything that I love about her and everything that people that don't like her don't like about her. There's this narrative about her career that has been crafted um, by straight white male critics um, over the last, well, it will be, TKI will be 40, I'm just a nerd, TKI, the kick inside will be 40 years old next year. So over the last 40 years, there's essentially been this narrative crafted by white male music critics, because that's who's writing most music criticism, that, you know, she, she, all of a sudden, she appeared out of nowhere with Wuthering Heights. Blew everyone away. Released the kick inside, instant star. Then she released Lionheart, and Lionheart is like eh, pale shadow of the kick inside. That was just kind of rush. She made rush as a way to capitalize on its success, which is true. It was mm-hmm. specifically put out in the same year as the kick inside yep. to capitalize on its success. But I still think we'll dig more into that. Then the narrative is that then she never forever. She experiments more. Which, again, Never Forever is an album that I also think needs a lot of revisiting because people only look at that as a bridge between her earlier work and her more experimental work. But Never Forever in itself is a masterpiece. And mm-hmm. my second favorite album of hers, After the Dreaming. Same so here. Then, so there's, yeah, oh, wow. Wow, we're like unicorns. Yeah, something. like seriously. Like, although for me, sometimes like it's the dreaming. It sometimes flips with Hounds of Love. But it's usually the dreaming first. And then never forever. Sometimes flip flops with hounds of love, but no, it's one of the. It's one of my top three. Seriously, that's great. Yeah, I think. And it's what's interesting about never forever as well is that it was the first 
number one album by a solo female artist in the UK. I did not so know it's that. Like it, it's, yeah. So the thing is that it always is getting just kind of shafted as like, oh, mm. that was your bridge to more experimental stuff. But it's, there's so much more to it. Which, and I look forward to digging more into it when it comes to that. Me too. Um, and then, so the narrative, that then she just like did her, and she called it this, her quote, she's gone mad album with the dreaming, mm. which if you have not listened to it, do not waste another moment. Um, mm. It is a complete, it's just a rich tapestry of sounds and the most brilliant listening experience you can have. Um, but, a, but with the dreaming, she lost a lot of fans really because she it was so experimental. And she also, starting on Never Forever, she co-produced it, The Dreaming, she produced herself. Mm -hmm. And then the narrative goes that she disappeared for a few years, and then she comes back with Hounds of Love, which is her masterpiece. Now, this is a narrative that I want to challenge because it's mainly been shaped by straight, well, straight white male music critics. And um, when I think about why do they always say that Hounds of Love is their best? It is a great album. I love Hounds of Love. Um, for some reason, when I had a lot to drink, that's always the one that I like need to act out and sing along to. I don't know why, but, um, <laughs> but the thing is her voice gets so much lower on Hounds of Love. Yeah. And it's, so, to me, the way I see it is it's so much easier for a straight man to handle mm. um, like that. They can digest like, like the screeches on Lionheart. And I think screeches with love. The way that they say screeches is not with love. It is mm -hmm. condescending, but like her early work, a friend, I was talking to my best friend the other day and she said like, Lionheart is for us. She said, it's for the gays. So it's just, it's, she's like, that's our album. Um, the, um, like they, and it's interesting, so amongst other fans I know tend to prefer her earlier work as well, who are more, um, I guess, like weirdos ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I think that, so basically on the kick inside and especially Lionheart, the pitch of her voice is what I'd call a straight man repeller. Um, in the book, Adventures in Kate Bush and Theory, the author De Deborah Withers writes that her voice is an assault on the normal parameters of vocal modulation. And that, I mean, with the opening note of Symphony in Blue, like, spend a lot of my time. I can't do it, obviously. Oh, but yeah. it's like, I remember, I remember cat sitting once and like playing it and the cat was just like startled. Like the cat will be, or, or the cat was like, there's my mom, I don't know, you know, but, um, <laughs> like she, I mean, Johnny Rodden did say that his mother described Kate Bush's voice as a bag of drowning cats and mm -hmm. she's absolutely right. And I absolutely love her for that. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. Like all these things that people say that are supposed to be critical of her are exactly why I love her. So with Lionheart, I think that it really is overlooked a lot and kind of just derided as, oh, it's like silly because it's so theatrical it's mm -hmm. so campy it's even though she uses male narrators in her songs it's hyper feminine and so that's the explicit part and the implicit part is polymorphous sexuality and queerness and kind of in queer theory terms that means the idea of like an ever like a, a perverse sexuality in a way and also there's just so many things about like her the fluidity of her identity on this album is something that is pretty inherently queer within queer theory. There's a lot of talk about fluidity of identity and always changing. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, Lionheart represents everything that Kate Bush haters dislike about her and everything that makes her an icon and safe haven to the freaks of the world. And it's interesting to kind of contrast with The Kick Inside. The Kick Inside is an album about bodies. It's about the way, like to me, that is such a, it's so grounded in physicality. I mean, literally the first song is called Moving. The album title is about a is the sensation of a child kicking you inside. Um, so it's all about bodies, the way they move, the desires they express, the way they die, generate new life and room for the life. And then like in Mothering Heights, the way they return as ghosts. Mm -hmm. And that does continue with Symphony in Blue because she does talk about the regenerative, regenerative power of sex. But Lionheart is different. Lionheart is more aggressive. I don't want to say more theatrical because they both really are. Yeah. But it's, there's something very aggressive about Lionheart, like aggressive softness in a way. Like if you listen to a song like In Search of Peter Pan, her voice is so screechy and high. And again, I say screechy with love. Mm -hmm. It's so screechy and high, but it's so female. Like just the sounds that she makes are just not a sound that a man would ever make. And 
I think that a lot of people don't know how to wrap their heads around that or handle that. Well, and also, admittedly, most female singers don't use the extremes of their range the way that Kate does on this album. Like most, most pop singers, they stick within maybe an octave, maybe an octave and a third, but you're Mm -hmm. not going to go all over the place the way that Kate does. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm with you. Like, I like it when she's singing high. I like that she's using her voice as an mm-hmm. instrument. As an instrument, yeah. It really is. And it's part of the storytelling. Like, for example, exactly. when we talk about wow, the ways that she changes the way that she says the word mm-hmm. wow throughout the song are actually indicative of the meaning of the song. Another thing with Lionheart that I find so fascinating from the perspective of like a literary critic or a media critic is, you know, she has a quote where she says, I often find myself inspired by unusual, distorted, weird subjects, as opposed to things that are straightforward. It's a, it's a reflection of me, my liking for weirdness. That's from 1980. And what's interesting is that in Lionheart, what she's known for are her story songs. Mm-hmm. Essentially, her music is not, her, her songs are short stories. Like what we're accustomed to in popular music is that we have a fixed speaker and through music we get to know the art we get to know that speaker who is the artist they're saying i this i that they're usually songs about relationships Mm -hmm. that is not what kate bush does and it's deeply radical she doesn't do this so Mm -hmm. basically like on all of her songs she's taking on a new identity and through because of that we don't know kate bush and what's interesting is that to me actually the songs that we're like on some later albums, like the red shoes that do seem more straightforward are for me much weaker. Um, mm-hmm. But so like, what's interesting is on the taken side, she has some kind of straightforward love songs, like feel it. Oh, to be in love. Lamore looks something like you that a critic could claim comes through a personal narrative voice. The Lionheart, her identity is fluid and multiple mm-hmm. in, you know, in, in search of Peter Pan, she's a little boy who doesn't want to grow up and identifies as Peter Pan in Oh England, My Lionheart, she's a British pilot circa World War II, uttering his dying words. In Casca from Baghdad, she's a genderless someone in Baghdad watching two ha- men have sex through a window. And this is such a break from contemporary pop music that's just about songs about relationships sung from a very subjective point of view that it's deeply radical and groundbreaking to have this, especially to have this teenage British girl have her not, she's not speaking through the album. Her personas who occupy multiple genders, races, and historical times are speaking. Mm-hmm. And she says in a quote, that's what, that's what all art's about, a sense of moving away from boundaries that you can't in real life. Like a dancer is always trying to fly, really, to do something that's just not possible. But you try to do as much as you can within these physical boundaries. Especially interesting given that there's at least one song in every album where she talks about flying. Oh, that's the like, motif mm. of her work, I'd say. And then in her Before the Dawn shows in 2014, at the end, she actually sprouts wings and flew over the audience. Yeah. So I think that so much of her career and work is about flying. Like on Lionheart, we can see what a lot of her interests are. We can see that she's clearly interested in theater. She's interested in like talking about showbiz. She's interested in talking about kind of like fairy tale. She's interested in talking about the, the British kind of nationalist past but we don't know her and that's that is what makes this so unique and i think really hard for people to digest it's true like you usually assume that the speaker i that oh that's the speaker their personal feelings but you're right she she doesn't do that on this album and 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 she does it very rarely period which is what I love about her so much. Um, I just, cause the thing is like, I hear a love song, like I'm, I'm like, okay, I've heard it, but her songs I can revisit again and again. Cause it's like reading a book again and again. And, um, and yeah, I just think that, and that is kind of where queer theory comes in, which is the idea that she's constantly shifting identities from, she's going from gender to gender, from race to race, from literally from time period to time period, from, living being to ghost um it's fascinating and there's 
other people do it, but not to the extent that she has. And she always says she speaks from other personas because they're more interesting than she is. Um, and I think it takes a great deal of humility to be able to admit that. <laughs> yeah. And I think some of that, like the reason she may be part of why she tends to not why she likes to to use herself as a character or speak from the point of view of another person is probably because of her background in listening to folk music. I think Mm -hmm. that has a lot to do with it. And the fact that her family was willing to to delve into big, deep subjects like like I was talking about on on the Feel It episode that her family wasn't afraid to go, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, well, sex, this is this thing. (laughs) And I think that that really got into her head. Yeah, there's this anecdote in the biography Under the Ivy where apparently she, like, presented her father with the lyrics of Lamore looks something like you. And I'm like, girl, like, that's the song where she says, she describes had sticky love inside. Your like, absolute favorite That's graphic. <laughs> my, my favorite line. But, like, I'm like, you are showing that to your dad. Okay, you know, you do you. But also, like, you have the organic acid demo where her brother is, like, reciting his gross poetry over uh, her music. Yeah, very much. But, Yeah, I'm not going to let them know. But I feel like another reason with Lionheart, because of why it gets shafted, is... I'm very, I'm very meticulous about album ordering. Like when I used to make mixtapes, mix CDs for friends back when people still used to do that. And when I make playlists now, I'm really intentional about like the order I put songs in and how they flow into one another. And with Lionheart, so on the kick inside, the songs are ordered in a way that creates a lot of variety. And each song sounds different from the one that precedes it. You know, you have, I think the, the best transition ever, like on an album, is the man's a child in his eyes going into Wuthering Heights. Like, it's like that is quite a transition. Mm-hmm. And then you go to James and the Cold Gun, then you go to Feel It, and it's just like all these different things. And it's so interesting that all variety. So with Lionheart, it's backloaded with piano driven ballads. Um, like the second half, like, so from, Oh, and my lion heart. There's kind of a lot of that, a lot of piano ballads in there. And there are some really good ones. Like as I'll, we'll talk about later, full house, I think is one of her most deeply underrated songs, but you lose sight of it. Like it took me like a solid year to really love this album because, um, and I would just like only listen to the few songs that I liked. But then I realized that the reason I didn't like a lot of the second half was because it seems monotonous. So what, like, so what has, I think that what they should have done, for example, is like, I mean, this is hard for me to say, because Hammer Horror is an amazing closer and a perfect closer and one of my top 10 songs of hers. But like, almost if that had been moved up and then one of the slower songs moved as the finale. Hmm. Like, just to create, I think that the problem with this album is that the way the songs are ordered, there's not enough variety so you kind of get lulled into it. And also, this is just my subjective opinion. I think In the Warm Room, which is a song on it, I think it's a, just a pretty, obje- like, terrible song. Mm. And firstly, like, she has so many amazing demos that could have been used instead of In the Warm Room. So don't even get me started on that. <laughs> but I think the fact that In the Warm Room is on there really drags the second half down a lot. Because it it's not that long, but it feels like seven minutes long. And so, for example, like Full House is sandwiched in between Oh England, My Lionheart and In the Warm Room. So it just kind of disappears between those. And mm. then when you have one in the warm rooms over, then you have Casca from Baghdad. But you're kind of so, at least for me, I, I, I mean, see, when I listen to it, actually, I always skip In the Warm Room like 80% of the time. But you're kind of just like, oh, God, that song was kind of long and ponderous. And then Cash Can Bad Up comes on, you're like, oh, another piano song. Mm-hmm. So it took me a while to really listen to it and appreciate it. And what made me really love that song was actually the live performance she did of it on Ask Aspel in 1978, which we'll talk about in the Cash Can Bad Dad episode. Mm-hmm. But I just think that had the songs been ordered differently, had I think that had In the Warm Room been dropped, one of her more superior demos been put in instead, and the songs been ordered in a way that made the album more static, I mean, more dynamic rather than static in terms of like the type of song that precedes the other, it would have 
had a better critical reception. But that's, mm-hmm. just, that's just my thought. I think it's interesting also that the only new songs for the album, all of them are ones she had already written. So her new songs, because by the t- when she got hot, like her record deal at 16, she'd already written over 100 songs. Mm-hmm. So the new ones were Symphony in Blue, Full House, and Coffee Homeground. And I think it's interesting that we end um, the King's Side on death. And then we open on Symphony in Blue. So what's interesting is that the kick inside you end, the, the song is a suicide note from a sister to her brother. Mm-hmm. And then you open this album, the song talking about regener- like using sex as a way to generate new life. So it's kind of like, it's a really interesting follow-up and like way to lead in, I think. Well, and also what I think is really cool about beginning with Symphony in Blue is that to me, because you know, me being music nerd, <laughs> that mm-hmm. she's taking, she's writing with um, interesting seventh chords, which are used mm-hmm. most often in jazz music. And so mm-hmm. she's beginning the album like on a different note than her previous album, where she's this one she's yeah. beginning with like a slight jazzy sort of feel to it. I mean, the symphony in blue makes me think of rhapsody in blue. Yeah, and it's meant. She said it's meant to. And plus, no, actually, no, she said it's meant to think of Eric Satie. Yeah, I which, she, she, yeah. you know, right before, and when she was she did it live, she had them playing uh, mm-hmm. Gymnopedies right before it. Yeah, yeah. And on the Christmas special, the infamous. Yeah. If, you, if anyone listening has not watched the Kate Bush Christmas special, go on YouTube, look it up. Your life will be forever changed. Oh, I love the Christmas special. Ah. I may or may not watch it once a week sometimes more it is like my great it just is like my greatest happiness it is the silliest thing in the world and again the christmas special is like lionheart it exemplifies everything that people don't like about her and what i love about her so it she start it starts out with her singing violin never forever dressed as a bat pretending to be a bat and it only gets weirder from there mm-hmm. like that is just the beginning it like she ends there's one song where she's in drag with somebody, with one of her dancers dressed as an adult baby, there's one where she's killing people at a wedding. It's, oh, yeah, the wedding the list. Oh, I, I, I love the wedding list. But, um, yeah, I think just early Kate Bush, people find really, a lot of straight men find very hard to stomach because she's so theatrical in a way that is very queer. Mm-hmm. And, and as a queer person myself, her work really resonates with me. And I know for queer men, she is an icon mm-hmm. um, as well. And it's interesting because like in terms of her fan base of younger people that I know, a lot of queer women are too, which I find interesting because she was never, you know, like known as like a lesbian icon in any way. Yeah. But I think she does. There's some, there's just that outsider quality speaks to us, even though she's not totally an outsider on that BBC documentary, the Kate Bush story, which was my, introduction and gateway drug into her um brett anderson from the band suede even just thinking of him i like i'm like oh i get mad um he has this whole thing he's like oh yeah in her early career she's still trying to find her voice and she was prancing around in leotards and that's the narrative that's around her early work and it's also deeply ironic because if you brett anderson in the early 90s what was he doing prancing around in leotards and eyeliner Hmm. on stage so like and like yeah. do people call, and so was David Bowie, and so was Prince. Mm-hmm. But with her, it's like, oh, she's a little silly theater girl, and people mm-hmm. are really scared of her being more than that. I think, like, because we're talking now, she's considered a genius. But back, in, for, I read a lot of like archival stuff, and back there's a lot of archival stuff being like, oh my god, this is so silly. Like, she's just, you know, an overdramatic little girl, which, like, is, it is silly. But, mm-hmm. you know, but that's what makes it so fun. Exactly. You I was wondering if you had any thoughts on like the title and what that means to the album as well. Cause I have thoughts that I want to hear yours. Well, 
Well, when I heard Lionheart, I immediately think of one of her uh, previous, one of her Kathy demos that was yeah, uh, the, about Lionheart's Sewn on the Rock, Sewn on the Rocks. We are, yeah, it's called We Are the Lionheart. Yeah, it's We Are the Lionhearts. When I, when I f- was really starting to dig into some of her music, I heard that she did, a de- she just recorded herself doing a random song that she wrote called We Are the Lionhearts. And I w- always mm-hmm. wondered if that was somehow connected with Lionheart. And when I found that, oh, wait, no, that Lionheart is not the, it's not like she did a revamped version of that old song. It's, mm-hmm. I, I think that it's, it's neat that she chose Lionheart because it's honestly, it's a lot more, it sounds more exciting than saying describing somebody as being brave. And it yeah. makes me think of Richard the Lionheart going into English history. Mm-hmm. And I think as far as like why she might have named the album Lionheart, I think it's her kind of I think it's her saying that she's trying that she's being brave and showing off who she is, that she's being a lionheart. She uh, she's totally being She's like, you know what? I'm here. This is who I am. If you don't like it, yeah, whatever. These other people over here get it. <laughs> kind of. And thing. she's literally. I love the album cover. The mm-hmm. album cover. She's it's photographed by Gerard Mankiewicz. He. She's in a lion suit, posing on all fours. So this is. She's just the most. This is another reason I love her. She's so literal. Like this is someone who, when she sings the words "I'm so cold," like her dance move is like a shiver. Mm-hmm. Like she, this is, and this is why she's so campy. Because what camp is, like you read like Sontags on camp and stuff. Like camp is not aware of it being camp. Camp, like, is some for something to be truly campy, it has to be earnest. And she is completely earnest. Mm-hmm. And um, and so with Lionheart, her quote she says is, someone asked her why she named the album that way. She says, "Well, that was really from the title track called Oh and Win My Lionheart." And I just think it's a great word. It sort of means hero. And I think hero is a very cliched word. So I thought Lionheart would be a bit different. So, yeah, I think you're making a good point about bravery. But also for mm-hmm. me, kind of coming from a critical race theory perspective, it's interesting because she's bringing up so in England. A lot of like when I read like British articles about her, they call her our Kate. She's considered like Britain's good daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that she is invoking a very inherently nationalistic phrase for this album. And especially considering the ways in which she uses Orientalism and colonialism really as ways on this album and on never forever to kind of make, create an exotic other. So for example, like the Orientalism is kind of coined by the, writer Edward Said. Um, If I got his first name wrong, I apologize. But basically it's the idea that like within in the late, I'm really nerdy up the late, the turn of the century in terms of like the 1890s. There was Mm -hmm. this really big thing about like exoticizing the East. Mm -hmm. And a lot of writers were doing that. And then again, in the late 1960s and she was growing up, there was so much of like the Beatles. Yeah, the Beatles. There was like everyone's going to India and getting LSD and like getting enlightened. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there was this like ex- there was Orientalism part two really. And what's interesting is on how on Kashka from Baghdad she sings so explicitly about gay characters, but they're displaced into the exotic other, into this other land that yeah. is some. So it's like she can only discuss. She does talk about gay stuff in Wow, but she can only like, really confront it in a non-English context and it's also fetishizing. Like, I mean, the song itself is called Kashka from Baghdad. Mm-hmm. That's saying like, look, he is other in the title. This is someone who is not like us, the British public. Cause her, we, she says she makes music for British people. She doesn't care about America. So this is, <laughs> this is someone who's not like a, and then in addition to that, there's the queer element. And also with Copy Homeground, she it's this Weimar influenced song mm-hmm. where she's displacing danger of murder and danger onto Germany. So it's interesting. And then Owen Lynn, My Lionheart, the song, is like a British nationalist anthem. It's basically like saying all how Britain is home, it's nostalgic, citing specific 
um, places and like the Peter Pan statue in London. Um, and it's so nationalistic and she uses a lot of the possessive terms that she calls things my in it. Well, I mean, there's the title, Owen Lynn, My Lionheart, but she talks about my garden, my this. And it's a yeah. song that it's supposed to be from the point of view of a soldier, of an air, like an air soldier in World War II who's dying and these are supposed to be his last thoughts. And so that in itself is very na- nationalistic because talk about imperialism, war. And then, um, my socialism is coming through. And then um, you have like everything that Oh England, my lion heart is so comforting and it's so home. Whereas all like the weirder stuff gets displaced and exoticized and fetishized into the quote unquote, the East. So I think on this album, something really interesting is she is establishing with the title itself, her reputation as England's good daughter, you know, descendant of Richard the Lionheart. Um, and in what ways does she then portray the quote unquote, the other? Yeah. Well, when we get to Akashka from Baghdad, it's, it's going to be, cause there, I've got a couple of thoughts on the setting, especially that I just find yeah. like, Hmm, I wonder why she did this. <laughs> yeah, totally. And just, just the fact that I, that she named of all the songs that she chose only in my line heart to use for the title, I think is very telling in terms of her being like, quote unquote, I, like Deborah Withers said this in her book about Kate Bush, Britain's good daughter, which I think is really interesting. But I just, yeah, this album, it's it's just so out there in terms of vocals. And she does so much in terms of genre. Like, she'll add to the Weimar Germany-influenced coffee homeground, which I used to hate. But then my best friend loves it and, like, convinced me into loving it. Also, actually, the live version from Four of Life. Yes. You know, I I was kind of with... I like it, too. Like, I... God, the routine for it. I'm like, I wish to God that she had released that routine because it looks like something it is like straight out of like Chicago or some other yeah. Broadway musical and it's yeah. just it's so well done and it fits mm-hmm. the song too and it oh. does yeah it, it was only after watching that that I really like because I always skipped whenever I'd listen to this album I would always skip in the warm room and coffee home ground and also the coffee home ground it is like to use the quote I mentioned earlier assault on the normal parameters of vocal modulation <laughs> i mean this entire album is an assault oh, on the yeah. normal parameters of vocal modulation and that is just not something straight men are prepared for and who was doing music criticism in 1979 well actually it came out in 78 so who was doing criticism mostly straight white women. men and honestly so, like yeah. yeah in some ways a lot of music has changed in 40 years yeah. i mean there are you there you there are more women on the charts even though let's see i checked billboard this week and only two solo female artists were in the top 10 20 mm-hmm. and the rest and the, there were a couple of the others that were just guest guest artists on another guy's yeah. track but in some ways like stuff really hasn't changed because i think there's always this perception of women especially like female singers that they're supposed to be kind of sweet and not too adventurous. And yeah. I think in some ways that that not a lot has really changed. Cause I mean, your, your mainstream females are really not that adventurous. <laughs> like there's I think nobody. It's, it's one or the other. It's like that or, or hypersexual mm-hmm. and she is hypersexual, but like when she sings, feel it, she sounds like Elmo so you kind of like, it's like almost desexual. It's interesting because at the time she was a huge sex symbol and there's the infamous Gerard Mankiewicz photo shoot where you can see her nipples showing yep. through that got plastered on like billboards everywhere in 1978. And people now actually don't realize, like people our age don't realize how sexual her image was. But like, I remember watch, like, listening to this BBC um, interview with her with a dude 
um, from 2005 when Ariel was released. Mm-hmm. And this is his introduction to the interview. He wasn't talking to her yet, but he's basically talking about how he used to masturbate to pictures of her on his wall. And I'm like, uh, this is why straight men should not be allowed. I'm like, this is why straight, what, straight men need to be banned from music criticism and interviewing, A. B, like, that goes to show how powerful of a sex symbol she was. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting because now she's becoming kind of desexualized. But when you hear some, when you, then she's saying in Symphony Blue, she's singing so positively about sex and on the cake inside so much as well. The cake inside is entirely, as I said, an album about bodies. So um, I think the fact that her voice is so almost like a cartoon character, like desexualizes it because you don't really even like there are times where I don't know what the hell she is saying. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but I but I re- I'm really invested in rehabilitating Lionheart's reputation. I think that it's such a victim of bad track placement and also like like even now on every list it gets put as like her worst album. Mm-hmm. And she has contributed to that herself by saying yeah. Oh, it was rushed, it wasn't what I wanted, and that's that's fair. And I and it did take me a solid year to really love it. It really took me actually reading the Deborah Withers book, Adventures of Kate Bush and Theory to love it, when she connected queer theory to it especially talking about like um in search of Peter Pan and the fluidity of identity. Um that I really came to to love it, and it's it's so theatrical. And to quote my best friend, it's for us, it's for the free. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, weird people need music too. So just to let you all know, the first song episode is going to be Symphony in Blue, and that will be coming out next week. So I hope you will join us for this season where we get to delve into one of Kate's more underappreciated albums. And as always, if you have a favorite song that you want to chat about for a future episode, do Hit me up either on email, kbcast at link, that's link with an E, media.com. You can also find me on Twitter at StrangeKateCast and on Facebook, facebook.com slash Kate Bush Podcast. I want to hear from you. Remember that part of why I'm doing this whole series is so that I can connect with other Kate fans and we can talk about the really really extensive history of each of her songs because there is a lot of cool stuff to delve into as we were talking about here on this episode just getting into Lionheart and that's just one album so I hope you will join me next week for our first song episode Symphony in Blue and we'll see everybody then And certainly her show, her for tour of life with where she did pretty much every I think with every song on this album that she did on her tour. Yeah. Every song was like a set piece. It wasn't like you had one narrative running throughout the entire show. Like you had a different setup for wow than you did for mm-hmm. Hammer Horror and Hammer Horror. She wasn't even singing live, which I'm right. sure well, was kind of a shocker. Yeah. And I mean, I would not be able to. It's no wonder she had to lip, not even lip sync that yeah. song because she was being thrown around. But like each song was like its own set piece, which was, I'm it sure, is. a very novel thing for the time. That usually, I mean, yeah, like people came out and they sang their songs. Like ABBA, I was yeah. watching an ABBA thing like around that time period. They were just came out and they just, yeah, we're just kind of standing here, we're doing our thing, and nothing else really going on. Yeah. And Pink Floyd did. And what's interesting is that people always assume she was influenced by Pink Floyd because of David Gilmore discovering her. But she's been quoted many times saying she didn't even really listen to them beforehand and mm-hmm. listen to them more after. 
But um, but so there were bands like Pink Floyd and Genesis that were doing theatrical things. But I mean, the headset microphone was created for her tour of life. So literally, no other pop tour could have existed had it not been for mm-hmm. Kate Bush and like Ariana Ariana Grande and like every pop Lady singer Gaga. right now. They all need to be thanking her. Like they don't even even the people who've never heard of her need to like they like pay her some royalties or something. Not that yeah. she needs any, but you know. <laughs> You know, when I was in a music store, a music gear store a couple months ago, and I saw one of those headset mics, and I just laughed like, oh, you guys have no idea. Hey, she came up with that, man. It's just so interesting because it's like that is what makes pop tours pop tours. Mm -hmm. And it's because of her and Lowell, who is the person who designed it for her, give them credit, but made with a wire hanger. But whenever I tell people that, they're always like really taken aback. That's always like the fun Kate Bush fact that like that I tell non fans that always blows them away the most. Like, oh, really? You know, I think that's so interesting. She's done literally every. She like I could make a whole list of everything she did first. Like literally everything. Well, it's interesting also in terms of talking about like the storyteller versus like fixed identity thing. Like up to that point you had someone like Joni Mitchell, who was probably kind of the most well-known in terms of female artists, in terms of being considered more of like an artist as opposed to just a girl singer. Even then with for, for blue, it's all, it's a very personal album. So there is an expectation for pop music to be personal and to be um, coming from the self. But Kate Bush denies her view, her listeners access to the self. And I find that, extremely powerful extremely brave and extremely inspiring as an artist as a human you know all those levels and like you said she doesn't talk about herself at all on this album not well except for maybe full house she said full house is autobiographical which i find really interesting we'll talk about it more in the full house episode because full house is an it's an anxiety song. It is a song about your mind ravaging you with intrusive thoughts. And yet in every single intro I've seen with her, which has been in every single one that exists and read too, she always says, I'm a very happy person. So it's a really interesting contrast and something I'm looking forward to exploring more like full house. I think like when I, when I, played it for friends of mine. I have general, I should also mention I do have generalized anxiety disorder. So that song resonates with me a lot on that level. And I've actually played it for other friends who have GAD and they're like, Oh my God, this is what my life is like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's going to be interesting to talk about because honestly, full house is not, is probably one of my least favorite on Lionheart, but I do like like the lyrics. I really do. Yeah. like like how vivid the lyrics are but of course we will talk about that in the lionheart yeah. of the full house episode yeah exactly and also it starts out even there's a tension with the piano chords mm-hmm. the way it starts out it they rise and it's very immediate tension but because it comes after the dub that is in the warm room with that terrible line about like her thighs are like marshmallows uh, and, like, yeah I'm like, this is a straight wo- I'm like, this is a straight woman writing about a straight woman. Like, this is not how someone who desires women talks about girls. Like, yeah. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 